Mark chapter 12, 13 through 27. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the word of the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Mark's original readers and we as the current readers know that Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified and then eventually rise from the dead. We know that that's where the story is headed, and that's where Mark's readers would have known that the story is headed. This middle section of the Passion narrative, it, it comes after the triumphal entry, but before the actual arrest. This middle section is devoted to explaining what happened that led to that crucifixion. Who killed Jesus and why? is the main question that these chapters answer. So we saw last week that Jesus confronted the scribes and the chief priests and the elders in the temple. And now this week, we see groups confronting Jesus. So we have three different groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and then the Sadducees. And so we'll take each of those in turn. So we have a lot of background, a lot of context for this Sunday. So this first group, verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talks. Who are Pharisees? Who are Herodians? Why are they working together? What's the trap? How does Jesus respond? Why do they marvel? These are questions that we have as we read this section. So they, in verse 13, they sent to him, that's the chief priests and the scribes and the elders from the previous section, These are the religious and political leaders in Israel, and they're now sending Pharisees and Herodians to trap Jesus. Pharisees pop up all over in the Gospels and in the New Testament, and the Pharisees were an informal, 
but hugely influential movement within Israel. Phariseeism is more a school of thought than an institution. Hundreds of years prior to the events in the Gospels, back in 586 BC, the original temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And the city of Jerusalem had been sacked and God's people had been driven into exile, forced out of the land. They had lost the land that they had been promised. Years later, under the rule of the Persians, Jews were allowed to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. And the temple that was built in Jerusalem, the second temple, was far smaller, far less glorious, far less ornate than the first temple. The the temple and the city were a shell of their former glory. And Israel had remained occupied territory. First, they were under the Persians, and then by the time you get to Jesus, they're under the authority of the Romans. And when God's people, when Jews returned from the exile, these Jews had to reckon with what had happened to them. What had caused this fall from grace? This is the promised land. We are God's people. Why would we be destroyed? Why would the temple be destroyed? What has happened to us? And many Jews rightly concluded that their covenant unfaithfulness had led to bearing the covenant curses that God had warned them about in the law of Moses. So if you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, especially in Deuteronomy, You'll read these covenant blessings. If you do this, it will go well for you. And covenant curses. If you do this, it will go poorly for you. And they read that and they said, that's what's happened to us. We abandoned the covenant that God had made with us and we have now taken the covenant punishment. They had been persistently unfaithful and so they had come under God's discipline and displeasure. Now, in response to that, a movement emerged that sought to reform the spiritual life and the religious practices in Israel. Covenant unfaithfulness got their predecessors into this mess, so this time they would live faithfully, and they would be prepared, and they would make themselves worthy so that when the Messiah comes, to deliver Israel and restore, restore them to their former glory, he'll see that they're ready. Now that's the right impulse, and that's a good and worthy endeavor. Be ready when the Lord comes. Live faithfully. But the Pharisees fell into self-righteousness and pride and hypocrisy and legalism. They were Jesus' loudest and most persistent opponents. And we see in Matthew 23, Jesus' scathing assessment of the Pharisees. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 23, beginning with verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 
You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's what had happened to the Pharisees. They looked good, but inside they were dead. They were lawless, uh, legalistic, Pharisee, hypocrite. So that's where they had fallen. That's what had happened to them. They cared deeply about outward action and religious claims, but their hearts were just as idolatrous and just as unfaithful as their predecessors. They paid lip service to God, but they did not love him or know him. Which is why they rejected his son when he came onto the scene. Every interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees is this rejection, this negativity, this no, he's not the one. And Jesus had exposed the Pharisees and laid bare their hypocrisy, and they hated him for it, and they wanted him gone. On the other side of the political and cultural aisle, there are the Herodians. We're familiar with Herod the Great from the birth stories about Jesus and in the first few chapters of Matthew and Luke. So Herod, King Herod, was ethnically half Jewish. His mother was a Jew and his father was an Edomite. Herod was friendly with the Roman government and he was installed by the Romans as their client king over the region of Judea. Herod's primary job was to maintain that region's submission to Rome and to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. After Herod's death, his sons ruled in his place. So by the time we get to this chapter, Herod Antipas is, is the son. And he's the one who beheaded John the Baptist back in Mark 6. And he's going to be the one that participates in Jesus' arrest and death which Luke talks about in Luke 23. The Herodians, they were the group of friends and associates of the, of the family of Herod. These are the cronies of Herod's family. And these people, these Herodians, they had power and influence and wealth that was tied to the ongoing success of that family. So as long as Herod and his family's in power, that's good news for us. Unsurprisingly, most Pharisees hated Herodians. Herod was a half-Jew with no rightful claim to the throne, ruled as a puppet king, got rich off the taxes of God's people, fellow Jews, and gave those taxes to the Romans. So the Herodians were seen as traitors and heretics, which means that it's remarkable that these two groups are working together against Jesus. This is like Machiavellian politics. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
is the attitude of the Pharisees and the Herodians. I hate Jesus, you hate Jesus, he's a threat to me, he's a threat to you, so let's set aside our differences and let's work together to take him down. That's what's happening here in the, in the passage. And we know from verse 13 that they come to him to trap him in his talk. Verse 14, they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So we know because their motivation is to trap him that this is lip service. This is flattery. This is insincere. They don't mean what they say. And ironically, Mark says, everything they say is true. He really is these things. Jesus really is true. Jesus really doesn't care about anyone's opinion. Jesus really isn't swayed by appearances. Jesus really does teach the true way of God. They ought to be sitting at his feet, soaking in everything he has to say, joyfully submitting to him. So they want to trap him in his talk. The crowds love Jesus. He's really popular in Jerusalem right now. They're cheering him on as their anointed king. They've rolled out the red carpet for him. Jesus' opponents want to trick him into saying something that will cause the crowds to turn on him and will open a door for them to eliminate him. And so they ask him this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, if Jesus says yes to taxes, he's a Roman sympathizer and the crowds will turn on him. If he says no to taxes, then they can report him to the Romans as an insurrectionist. They think they've got him cornered. One response, and the Pharisees will have him. Another response, and the Herodians will have him. Instead, Jesus evades this hostile attempt. So verse 15 through 17, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. They bring him a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Caesar's. Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So a denarius is a day's wage and that's the amount of the yearly tax. So each Jew had to pay this yearly tax of a denarius. And this denarius, this coin, bears the image and the words of Caesar. So a a denarius would have had a picture of Tiberius Caesar Augustus, and it would have said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. In Rome, Caesar claims sovereignty and even divinity. He is a son of the God. Jesus looks at and describes the coin, and he says, give to Caesar the things that belong to him and bear his image, and give to God the things that belong to him and bear his image. So there's, a, there's this concept theologically that we see in the whole Bible of sphere sovereignty like sphere, like a a circle. And the idea is that different people or different institutions have sovereignty in particular areas. 
Okay? So the idea is that the government has legitimate authority on areas that God has designed for the government to operate. And a mother and father have legitimate authority on the areas that, over their children, on the areas that God wants a mother and father to operate. And a husband would have authority over a wife on the ways that a husband is meant to operate. But those are limited spheres, right? The government can, can require someone to do this, but they don't have authority to require them to do that. We see this all over in Scripture. So, for example, Esther and Mordecai, or Daniel, or Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, or Jeremiah. These people worked for the welfare of the city or region that they lived in. They even served in government positions. Esther was the queen. Daniel was the king's right-hand man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they served in the cabinet, essentially. These were high, highly influential, highly powerful government officials who were Jewish. But they maintained their covenant commitment to God. They maintained their submission to him. They worshiped and served him only, and they were critical when the state, when the government, acted in conflict with God or overstepped its bounds, even at great personal risk. So Daniel will work for the king of Babylon until the king of Babylon tells him to bow down and worship. And then he said, even if you throw me in the lion's den, I'm not going to say yes to that. You don't have the authority to tell me to worship you. You can tell me to pay taxes, but you can't tell me to worship you. That's the idea here. So these people understood that the state had authority and legitimacy within certain limits, and they were willing to honor those areas of legitimacy. But they also modeled a wholehearted devotion to God as their true and ultimate king. And they, and they would say that God had total sovereignty over every aspect of their life. They devoted to Caesar the limited things that were Caesar, and they devoted to God the absolute love and dependence and obedience that he deserved. This coin has Caesar's image and words on it. What has God's image on it? We do. We are God's image. We are made in his image. And so God has sovereignty over every detail of our life. We will bow down to him in worship. And so that's the concept that Jesus picks up here, and it's the concept that Jesus' disciples continue later in the New Testament. We see this in Romans 13. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Paul sees that same dynamic that Jesus is talking about. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3. So Jesus answers them with saying, do you not understand sphere of sovereignty? Caesar has authority, 
Give him the authority that he deserves. Give him the honor that he deserves. Give him the money that has his picture on it. And give God everything. And so verse 17, it says, they marveled at him. Jesus had evaded their trap and trapped them. He's exposed the Pharisees. Though they claim to know and revere the law, they are not following the pattern laid out for them in the Old Testament through Daniel and Esther and Mordecai and Jeremiah. And he's exposed the Herodians. They're happy to work with and under the sovereignty and authority of Caesar. They're happy to line their pockets and pad their seats of power through aligning with Caesar. But they are idolaters. They are rebels who are rejecting the total sovereignty of God and the rightly deserved honor and devotion to him. Having tried to trap him in his talk, he has instead left them speechless. Next up are the Sadducees. Now, who are they? What's their trap? How does Jesus respond? We don't know nearly as much about the Sadducees as we do the Pharisees or the Herodians. They're not mentioned often in the New Testament, and every time they are mentioned, it's negative. The general consensus by scholars with the Sadducees is that they were a subset of the wealthy priestly families in Jerusalem. They're a small group. There's not a lot of them, but they are disproportionately influential and connected. Essentially, these are the blue bloods in Jerusalem. These are the Ivy League grads. They are few in number, but they are in important position. They have seats on the Supreme Court, former and current presidents, senators. They're in Fortune 500 boardrooms. And just like our society looks at these blue bloods, they were mistrusted, unpopular, and people begrudged their wealth and influence. Now, these Sadducees were religiously conservative. They felt that groups like the Pharisees had built up an unwieldy artifice of rules and traditions around the law. They had added on these rules on top of rules. And so they said, we're going to strip it all down. We're going to reject all those extra rules. And we're going to hold to a, a core set of values and beliefs and, and Bible texts. So the, the Sadducees, they would say only the first five books of the Old Testament are scripture. Only the book of the law. The rest of the Old Testament, we don't hold to. And they had a strict, overly literal reading of the text. So here's our skinny little Bible, and we read it in our specific way. And because of this, they held some really strange fringe views. And Mark tells us here, they, they held... Verse 18, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So they denied life after death. And in Luke 23, excuse me, in Acts 23, Luke also tells us that they don't believe in angels or spirits. So this would be like someone in our day arguing that because the Bible doesn't explicitly have the word Trinity in it, we reject that concept. The, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, so don't talk to me about a Trinity. 
It's, it's bad logic, it's bad Bible reading, it's a fringe view, that's, that's what's happening here. So just like the prior group, these Sadducees are trying to spring a trap for Jesus. They present this test case that in their minds exposes the absurdity and silliness of the resurrection. So they bring up this hypothetical case of a woman who is successively widowed by seven brothers. She has really bad luck. Deuteronomy 25, a text that they would have affirmed, they would have said, yep, this is Bible. Deuteronomy 25 and other passages teach the concept of leveret marriage. And what this is, in Jewish culture, if a woman is widowed, the husband's brother or closest relative would take that woman as a wife and he would have the duty to provide for her and to continue the line of his brother. This is the story of Ruth and Boaz. That's the famous example of this. Okay, So that's, that's the concept. And in this hypothetical brought by the Sadducees, the woman is left widowed seven times before dying herself. And so Jesus, is this lady going to be a polygamist in your so-called resurrection? Now, we should look at this test in a similar vein to someone now who would say, can God create a rock so big even he can't lift it? Or if God can do anything, why can't he lie? Now, those can be legitimate, fair questions. There are answers to those questions. But they're often asked in a really immature, sophomoric, see, I got you way. It's not a good faith question. The, the person asking it, they're not actually open to an answer. They just want to show you how silly you are. I'm smart. You're stupid. I can't believe you think that this Jesus stuff is, is real. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus isn't happy with this question. And he's not gentle in his response. He bookends his answer with, you are wrong. You are quite wrong. You don't know the law. And you don't know the power of God. So first, Jesus tells them their view of the resurrection is warped. He says their, their view reveals that they don't know the power of God. Presenting the question as they do, they reveal an assumption that the resurrected life won't solve the problems of this present life. Because of death, the woman in the hypothetical scenario was widowed seven times. How, they say, is that mess going to be cleaned up in heaven? Jesus tells the Sadducees, marriage isn't going to continue in the resurrection. But those who are raised to eternal life will be like the angels in heaven. We don't have time to go into a full treatment of the resurrection and of the continuing of human relationships. I do, there's ample biblical evidence that you will know people in heaven that you knew on earth and that you will have meaningful relationships with them, but we're not going to get into that today. For today, the main point that Jesus is making is that the lifelong covenant between a man and a woman in marriage is a shadow of the eternal covenant between God and his people. And in the resurrection, the shadow is going to give way to the substance. And so Jesus says, you don't need marriage in heaven because you're enjoying the real thing, the full picture. 
which is what, so, so what Jesus is saying here is that what's going to happen to you in heaven is going to far surpass the glory and joy that you have here on earth. It's what Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. God's plans and power are far greater than the Sadducees assume. So they have this small view of the resurrection. They don't understand what the resurrection is going to accomplish. And so they think it's absurd. And Jesus says, you don't even know the law. You don't actually understand the Bible, even the part of the Bible that you think is true. He takes them to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. He says, the story of the bush. This is a passage they would have accepted. And Jesus says, when God talks to Moses, he refers to himself in the present tense as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus tells them it's clear in that passage that God sees himself as the God of the living, not of the dead. God is still the the God of the patriarchs long after they die. And you should remember this, hopefully, from this summer when we walked through Genesis. When Sarah dies, Abraham purchases a burial plot for her in the promised land. It's very important for Abraham to bury his wife in the promised land and then for him to be buried in the promised land. And it's important for Isaac and Jacob that they be buried in the promised land. And then it's important for Joseph, you better bury me in the promised land. Because they say, my story's not over. I might die before God fully gives this land to his people, but it's coming. And I am going to be raised to new life, and I am going to spend eternity in this land with my God. So again, Jesus turns the tables on his opponents. The the nature of the Sadducees' question doesn't reveal a flaw in Jesus or his preaching and teaching. It reveals a flaw in them. It shows their lack of understanding, their wrong reading of the law that they claim to believe. And it shows a shrunken view of God's power and God's purposes to make all things new, to satisfy those who hope in him. So those are the two interactions. And now we step back and say, what does this have to do with us? So the first, what I want you to see, the tribalism and polarization and division that we see in this passage shows that those problems were just as big of a deal in Jesus' time as they are in our time. There's Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees, and you can fill in the blanks for the tribes we have now and the factions that we have now. People were all over the political and cultural spectrum in Jesus' day. And today, people are all over the political and cultural spectrum. It was just as confusing and contentious and malicious then as it is now. So these people are asking, Jesus, are you a Pharisee, a Sadducee, or a Herodian? Are you a Roman sympathizer or are you a zealot? And Jesus says, no, I don't fit your categories. I am not one of your, I am not one of you. 
I'm not going to play your games. So these men, they had their tribe, their faction, and it's their identity. This is who I am. This was their source of value. This was their security. This was their meaning. This is where they got their hope. I'm one of them, and we're going to win. And when Jesus came and challenged their core values, defied their conventions, and confronted their authority with his own authority, when Jesus refuses to play their games, they explode. And in just a few chapters, these groups will conspire together to murder him. And we need to realize, if Jesus, had, if Jesus came here and now, instead of there and then, the same thing would have happened. Jesus does not fit in our tribes and factions. Jesus does not fit. Do you, do you understand? Jesus does not fit your political party. Jesus does not fit our cultural clique. Instead of Jerusalem, if Jesus had come to Washington or L.A. or New York or London or Paris or Beijing or Northfield, he would not fit in. He would confront and he would be killed. And when he comes to each of us, we face that dilemma. What will you do with him? Jesus or tribe, Jesus or party, Jesus or group, Jesus or family, which comes first? Which has supremacy? Which has authority? Which has your heart? Which has your identity? If your membership in a social circle or a family or a political party, or any other group, if that membership is not secondary to and under the submission of your connection with Christ, that's an idol. And it will eventually cause you to turn from Christ altogether, or it will cause you to distort Christ to the point that he is unrecognizable and not real and you will not know him or have him. This is what Anna read in in Philippians 3. This is what happens when someone comes to Christ. You have Paul, and who would Paul have said he was? A Pharisee. Philippians 3, he says, I am of the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. Paul's identity was in, I'm a Pharisee and we're going to win. We have it figured out. We are right. This, This is who I am. This is where I find my value. This is where I find my purpose. And what happened to Paul? He said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So who is Paul later in his life? He's not a Pharisee. He's a Christian. He belongs to Jesus. He is, under the, he is submissive to, under the authority of, has, his affections are given to Jesus and nothing else. It's the same thing that happens in Acts chapter 11. It says, in Antioch, Acts eleven twenty six. in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Why were the disciples called Christians? Because they didn't fit into any other category. They didn't fit into these categories, these current associations or identities. People looked at these believers and they said, that's not a Jew. It's also not a Gentile. That's not a Pharisee or a Herodian. That, that, that person, they're not a conservative or a liberal. They're not well-educated or blue-collar. None of those labels fit. What do we call this group of people? Let's call them Christians. They love and treasure and submit to Jesus Christ. He is their hope. When I look at this group of people, the only label that fits, the only, the only name that sticks is Christ follower. I can't think of how else to describe them. That's what's supposed to happen when you come to Christ. You still have political leanings and sensibilities. You still have ethnic and cultural ties. You still have social and relational connections. That does not go away. You don't lose your personhood when you come to Christ. But your core identity becomes, I have found Christ, and I want nothing more than to be found in him. Jesus has your allegiance. Jesus has your affection. Your connection to politics and culture and social groups and family are subject to your union with Christ. Your theology influences your politics and your values and your habits, not the other way around. And so if you've come to Christ, if you've seen Jesus as your treasure, the one who takes away your sin, the one who adopts you into his family, if you've come to Christ, you will find elements of a political party or a cultural norm or a tradition within your group or a long-held value in your family, that you have to step back and say, I can't go along with that anymore. That doesn't fit for me as a Christian. I'm gonna, I need to let go of that conviction. I'm no longer taking that stance. I'm not gonna engage in this behavior. I'm not gonna support this policy or this person. This thing that my party, my group, my family calls good, I can no longer call that thing good. We'll end here. Confronting these political tribes and factions costs Jesus his life. It probably will not cost you yours. It might. But it might cost a career or a friendship or comfort or a seat at the table. But with Paul, you can say, I don't care. I've gained Christ. Those things are rubbish compared to the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ and being found in him. I am no longer identified with this label. I belong to Jesus, and that's where I find my identity and my purpose and my value and my hope. Let's pray. Father, would you cause it to be true that we would be called Christians, that people would look at our lives, that our, the people who know us best would look at us and say, the best way I can describe that person is they follow Jesus. And that we as a church, people would look at our church and say, I don't know how to talk about that group of people except to say they really love Jesus. They really trust Jesus. They really try to follow Jesus. Their hope is really in Jesus. So we surrender all to you, Jesus, because you are worthy of our glory and honor and praise. In your name we pray. Amen.